This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussions in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Hokai Diego Sobol, returning to join us in conversation with Tibetan Buddhist teacher Ken McLeod. In this penetrating discussion, we explore the nature of Vajrayana Buddhist practice and its antecedents in the Tantric tradition, the primacy of the teacher-student relationship, and the intimacy of spiritual transmission, as well as the body as the foundation for the awakening experience. Hokai Diego Sobel started practice and study of Buddhism in 1985. After 10 years of exploring Buddhist thought and practicing martial arts, while broadly learning from sources Eastern and Western, mainstream and fringe, Hokai became a practitioner and eventually instructor in the Shingon esoteric tradition of Japanese Vajrayana, under the private tutelage of Ajare Jomyo Tanaka. Hokai founded the Mandala Society of Croatia in 1999. Continuing to explore and cultivate his own Buddhist practice, Hokai maintains an ongoing conversation with a number of teachers and senior practitioners. Starting from 2012, he focuses on mentoring individuals to deepen their practice in the context of their lives. Those who pray learn to meditate, and those who meditate learn to pray. Hokai's areas of special interest include mystical principles and esoteric practices in daily life, sacred apprenticeship, and deep semiotics. He is based in Rijeka, Croatia. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, he began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Okay, Diego Sobel and Ken McLeod, welcome both back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's great to have you. And if there are so many topics. Uh, just before we um, turned on the recording, there were so many topics that we uh, were discussing we might uh, talk about. But, um, and there were some strong feelings um, indicated in different uh, on different sides of the conversation, but I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it over to Stuart here because he has strong he as usual has strong feelings about things. So, um, before we uh, maybe, maybe I'll start with the uh, uh, we'll, we'll start we'll warm up to the uh, other topics um, and and start with uh, just an interesting opportunity we have with both of you because um, this is. 
again, the first time we've had the two of you together, but um, uh, uh, both Ken and Hokai have a long collaboration and relationship, and we've um, um, talked with each of you extensively on the mystical positivist in the past. The thing I find interesting is that you both represent Vajrayana traditions, but from very, very different uh, uh, backgrounds. Uh, Hokai comes from the Shingon tradition, which is a Japanese form of Vajrayana, and Ken comes from the Tibetan form, uh, the Kagyu uh, lineage in Tibetan Buddhism. And I'm interested, I know that Ken, you've been working on um, uh, material lately uh, for a new book in terms of how to get how to communicate Vajrayana tradition to the Western audience and how, how you translate some of the forms and practices which arose in very different contexts into something that makes sense for a modern Western mind, you know, Western American or European mind. And I thought I'd, I thought it'd be interesting to start there because um, not having as deep a background by any means in this, in Vajrayana as a generic tradition. I'm interested to see how both of you respond to this question of uh, how do you see Vajrayana as it, you know, penetrates or is uh, uh, elaborated in the Western tradition, and how does that relate to its traditional forms? Because I'm interested in seeing if is there a Vajrayana that is sort of transcends the particular cultural roots, because both of you represent very different lineages out of that tradition. I, I think um, I think a place to start with this is uh, to talk a bit about what is Vajrayana, uh, and uh, because that's a question I had to struggle with and working with this book. So, uh, Diego, I'm going to defer to you first. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are two obvious ways to go about this. Um, one is by defining what it is not, um, which is, um, you know, relatively easy to do by comparing Vajrayana to other systems of Buddhist practice. Um, but I find that a cop-out to some extent. Um, so I'm going to go and try to say what it is. Um, I would say it's a, it's a spiritual, um, it's a spiritual tradition existing in a variety of forms. Um, superficially um, different and um, therefore also superficially, you know, culturally uh, seemingly unrelated or um, um, dissimilar in some ways, but at its core lies a way of working um, in spiritual frameworks with everything arising in human experience. And this, by everything, I mean from basest human impulses to highest human aspirations, 
that's one way we usually think about it, but also broadly through working through all uh, sense, uh, you know, faculties that we have uh, through, through, through the whole horizontal richness of human experience and through all domains, this is in particular uh, important with some of other things you want to talk to, <laughs> to talk about, <laughs> through all domains of human involvement uh, with both one's own experience and the world. Um, so it's a, it's, it's, it's a spiritual style of practice and orientation and, 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 and view that, uh, that aims uh, at something very ambitious, which is to, to be comprehensive uh, without necessarily giving stock solutions or stock answers. And on top of all of that, I would say that it's a system that particularly strongly emphasizes uh, idiosyncrasies in human experience, meaning that there is no single Vajrayana for everyone. It's, it's, it's an endlessly malleable and uh, morphable uh, uh, range of practices and approaches that, make, that makes it... Um, that makes it extremely adaptive, not just to a variety of cultures and human eras of development, but also to varieties of human temperament, individualities, particular circumstances, malleable to conform into particular lifestyles, uh, and to work from within instead of being imposed from without on or on top of, of one's given circumstances. That would be my short, uh, um, you know, try at this difficult question. <laughs> Got it. That was, that was, that was very uh, coherent and helpful. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was, that was pretty good. Uh, I'm going to answer the question, the same question in two different ways. Uh, first, uh, from a historical uh, perspective, uh, Vajrayana is a collection of spiritual practices and approaches to spiritual practice, or actually I would say mystical practice, uh, that evolved out of the Indian milieu of religions that uh, in India in the roughly 300 to I guess the last major tantra was about the 11th century, uh, 11th or 12th century was the Kala Chakra. Uh, and uh, there was just, uh, India is just this potpourri of all of these different religions uh, and they mixed and interacted in very complex ways and as Buddhism interacted with those and there's a reaction, I think, against the uh, rigid monasticism and the arid uh, philosophizing, which Buddhism uh, developed in Buddhism in the early centuries of the common era. Then people started exploring with the shamans and the uh, sadhus and people who were outside the culture and, and just gradually these this whole mess of traditions. And, uh, and the Tibetan tradition, and Hoka, I can speak to the uh, 
Japanese tradition it, it, it consists of a selection uh, from two different periods. Uh, the Nyingma tradition, or the old ones as they refer to in the Tibetan tradition, the Nyingma, uh, are primarily drawn from practices that I think took play, uh, that were uh, present in the Kashmir district in the uh, eighth, seventh and eighth centuries, somewhere around there. Whereas the new school translations draw from a wider range of India, but still primarily Northern India um, uh, and uh, Bengal also. that uh, were uh, in practice in the uh, 10th or 11th centuries. Uh, so, and out of that, you have this very, very, very rich uh, collection of, of practices, which uh, the Tibetans have been trying to codify for the last thousand years. Uh, and, uh, and they've contributed somewhat to their own evolution by adding several uh, other traditions into the mix. That's a historical description of what Vajrayana consists of, you might say. What it, uh, as, as a mystical practice, and I, 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 I like very much what Diego just said, that it, it, it is very broad, it's very, uh, and uh, really is about finding a path for any individual or any individual finding a path of practice, which is possible given the richness of techniques and approaches that uh, are available within the general Vajrayana context. But at its essence, I, I think it is about when we have some kind of spiritual or mystical experience, the way we perceive uh, and the way we experience the world shifts. Uh, and there's a, a, a technical term for that in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, I can't remember what the Sanskrit is. Diego may know it. Uh, Dhatmang is the Tibetan. And it's a difficult term to translate. Um, sacred outlook, pure vision, etc. Uh, my preferred rendering of it right now is empty experience. That is, you experience everything that it's as if uh, you're looking at a reflection in a mirror, that the, the reflections are there, but there's, there's a, uh, a groundless quality in, in experience. And how you act and how you approach the world when you have that kind of experience is very different. You become extremely responsive to everything that arises. Uh, and. And that that shift in experience, I think, is uh, you might say the essence, at least for me anyway, is the essence of, of Adriana. And and everything else is about either giving expression to that or developing the skills and understandings and capacities in order to be able to move into that kind of experience. Um, and uh, but but I, I hesitate to say that. It's a, a system as, 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 a, as, as, a, as much as a, a collection of practices, which uh, many of which are, are very uh, unlike 
anything we have in the West, which is one, another reason. And, and as uh, Diego said, they're, they're intimately connected with the culture of India and the culture of Tibet. And the challenge I think that we face now is how does this way of approaching spiritual practice, uh, how does that build in the culture of the West? And so, so before, uh, uh, Hokai, we uh, turn it over to you to respond to that. Um, I just want to, I was struck very much by the image that you offered, Ken, about um, uh, reflection in a mirror. We are sitting in a room, Stuart and I are sitting in a room uh, with a lot of big windows, and those windows reflect if, from the outside uh, in such a way that birds not infrequently attempt to fly into the window and sometimes kill themselves, yeah. not understanding um, what the situation is, or yeah. other times uh, they'll just uh, bang their heads I think and off they, they go. I think they think they're defending their space or something. Well, I don't. I, I don't know what they what they think, of course. And um, uh, but whatever it is, um, I was I was struck by the idea that perhaps this um, mystical perspective that you're pointing to can is a way to understand that a mirror is a mirror and not simply an extension of one's personal uh, projections. Does that fit it at all into what, into what you were saying? Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, it's, um, I, I, it's interesting you mentioned the birds flying into the uh, uh, window, and, and, and Stuart's quite right. I, I had a terrible time with scrub jays last year because uh, they saw the reflection in the one of my windows and, and and would attack it. They just completely destroyed one of my screens in the process. Uh, and it, it's a very nice analogy because a bird looks at its reflection and thinks it sees uh, a threat or an opponent, doesn't understand what it's actually seeing. And in a very similar way, we look at this world and we project this idea that there's a solid world out there and doesn't we don't understand that we're seeing uh, something that's arise that, that doesn't have the kind of reality that we attribute to it. Uh, and so I, I think it's a very, a very appropriate analogy. Uh, Diego, your thoughts? Yeah, well, the mirror, the mirror metaphor is, uh, um, uh, is, is uh, points to something that is already present in every, in every mind. Well, in every human and what it results in um, habitually is not extreme responsiveness it's extreme reactiveness extreme reactions um, and um, something akin to the bird um, we are you know we are animals albeit extremely intelligent and resourceful but we have this animal um, animal uh, aspect to our psyche and we do the same as the bird when we see something in a in a reflection we we react to it before realizing what happened we have a broken neck or whatever so uh we we tend to when, when we talk about that mirror there is a there is a phrase used in uh sino-japanese uh, vajrayana which is bright mirror uh, whenever mirror is used as a metaphor, we, we say a bright mirror. And this brightness refers to a knowing that it's present when appearances appear 
quote unquote exactly as they are, though I have issues with that phrase. Uh, but there is a brightness, there is a knowing that what is seen is not, uh, is not to be taken literally and is not to be responded to before uh, an, an ability to respond meaningfully arises. And uh, it's, 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 it's a somewhat um, daunting and challenging um, prospect to start with this uh, topic <laughs> right off. <laughs> but you have this, I'm, I'm talking to Ken now, you have this <laughs> habit of going straight to the, uh, straight to the most difficult thing. Yeah, so what you said about um, commenting a little bit, if I may, on your um, historical um, aspect of it, I think it's extremely important to remember where Vajrayana initially started, where it took its initial uh, vital impulse, uh, where it developed its basic um, um, instrumental ritualism. We have to remember that in Vajrayana, all ritualism is instrumental. It's never an end in itself. It's, it's an art form that attempts as much as it can to go beyond itself. Um, that's where most of the basic components of the ritual palette uh, that we find in Vajrayana uh, stems from, the, the richness of the Indian culture and the encounter at the borders of the Indian culture with the shamanistic uh, uh, elements and the uh, you know highly developed theology of India on the other hand and the yogic, uh, the yogic technologies that were already developed uh, if we trust the records by the time of the Buddha, much, uh, much, and they continue to develop later, and there is a thousand-year period between between the Buddha and the formation of Vajrayana, um, and the, the tradition in which which I trained um, takes its origin in the earlier formulation of Vajrayana, so it's much closer to by its by its by its time, uh, it's much closer to Nyingma school than the later uh, Tibetan schools, uh, so that what in Tibetan school is known as the higher tantras are absent in my own uh, training. Um, my own training would stop in Tibetan terms with Mahayoga, uh, something like that, earliest earliest Mahayoga, I would say, um, in, in Nyingma vocabulary. And in, in, in the more commonly known vocabulary, it would be the, the third level uh, known as the Yoga Tantra. Um, so, it did, however, even if it started in India, we know that now we have Vajrayana preserved in not only on the Tibetan plateau, but in the adjacent kingdoms of Nepal, Bhutan, and... Also Mongolia and Russia. And, exactly, and Mongolia, I think it's Kalmykia in Russia, uh, if I remember correctly, yeah. Um, uh, those would be Mongolian and Russian forms would be with a with a more strongly pronounced shamanistic element uh, closer to the um, uh, closer to what in Tibet would be known as the uh, white robed uh, uh, white robed mantra practitioners. Mm. Uh, somewhat, no. It, it, it's actually a pretty convoluted history, so I don't think we need to get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> better not to go there. <laughs> But in, in Japan, uh, just, just pretty much as in Tibet, it became, with time, with, in a couple of centuries, starting in the 
starting in the late 8th and then exploding in the 9th century uh, after, a after a very fast transmission through China consisting of only one Chinese generation of uh, transmission. So the previous one were priests arriving from India, from the greater India. And then the next generation was the first uh, Japanese transmission. So there is only, only so actually the, the priests arriving from India and, and the Japanese students almost met in China. Um, so there was a rather quick transmission after which it was cut off from further development. And That's very interesting that, because one of the main avenues of Vajrayana into China came later in the, uh, in the when the Mongols took over China. Exactly. Yeah. And the Japanese didn't get any of that. No, any of that. No. So nothing, nothing that happened in China after after Ill, well late tenth, early eleventh centuries had absolutely no influence in Japan. So that explains most of the differences. Yeah. Because these earlier layers were supplanted, even in Nyingma, they were supplanted and further developed. Even though Nyingma started earlier, it continued to uh, bring in new transmissions and, and etc. So there is some difference in that. But there is also a, an evidence in the uh, Chinese and then Japanese transmission how, uh, how Vajrayana can and uh, is able to adapt to uh, fully developed uh, cultures, which in my understanding, when Vajrayana initially came to Tibet, there was a significant difference in the development between India and, and Tibet. India was considered as a mother, as a superior, a superior civilization and a superior sor source of spiritual teachings. It wasn't the case with China. And um, Japan viewed China in a similar way at the time in which, uh, as, as Tibet viewed India. Uh, you know, high, high, the highest elites of Japanese society were sent to China to study, or Chinese teachers were brought into Japan. And I'm not talking spiritual teachers, you know, teachers of literature, art, culture, everything, law, administration, everything at the time. So. But there was a very quick uh, adapting to, to Chinese culture, uh, but it wasn't so quick as we would expect things to happen in the West, because these days I think we want things to happen in a, in a span of a couple of years, couple of decades. We have a problem thinking of development in terms of a couple of lives. And we, in, in the modern West, we have a fairly strong distrust of um, multi-generational projects. Why that happened, I think, is a very complex, complex historical, political, social issue. But without working in terms of several generational uh, perspectives, it's very difficult to understand how, how Vajrayana can become uh, a native uh, spiritual or mystical form in the Western, uh, yeah. in any Western culture. <clears throat> Yeah, I would agree very much with that because it, it, it we're very much in the. You could divide it up into three. I'm being rather arbitrary here. Three phases. Uh, the first is being trained in the in the tradition as as, as it comes to us, like in the in my case in the Tibetan tradition, mm -hmm. and, and then the second phase is. Uh, 
coming to understand that tradition uh, in Western terms, which is, uh, my book is probably a small contribution or small effort to contribute to that. And, but the third phase, which I don't think we've even begun yet in any meaningful way, is how those techniques um, uh, evolve within the context of Western culture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, we're looking at the very minimum two to three generations. Yeah, because because uh, when we look at the texts themselves, and when we look at the tradition as practice at any period of time in time and in in, in any culture where it was uh, you know alive, at the core of that tradition is the uh, relationship of teacher and student, and the event of transmission. Transmission is not something that happens at once in a day in a ritual context. It's a process. And I, I, I think that that's where the translation takes place, within the transmission, within that relationship. And we can't just have a translation made and then applied. I think that's, uh, that's a very good point. Yeah, so we, we need to have several, you know, it, it doesn't have to be linear generations, but several iterations, not just several, probably a couple of dozen iterations of the transmission experience to develop the uh, new vocabulary, the, and as you say, eventually new content and new raw materials from which uh, new techniques and new approaches are assembled based on the same deep code which was learned from the, you know, from the original originating culture. Let me, let me uh, jump in here and, and uh, because you've, you've reminded me of a topic uh, that I was thinking about asking you guys about, and it, I think it, it's okay to insert it here, and that's the subject of, of the material context of uh, spiritual transmission, to, to point to what you were just talking about. Okay, and that's that's the um, uh, the ways in which, or that includes ways in which, the social context in the West in the 21st century is utterly different than the Japanese context in the the 8th century or the 10th or 11th centuries, certainly in Tibet, etc. So. Okay, you were just talking about about um, this process happening between teacher and student, and that resonates for me f for sure. And yet, um, and yet we have very different social um, uh, arrangements in the West now, uh, cultural values in the West now than what we're obtaining in either Tibet or Japan in the relevant periods when these, when Vajrayana was being imported. And so um, I'm wondering if, if, if you guys can, can discuss how you think those, those I'm calling them uh, the material culture aspects, but I'm pointing as well within that term to the social aspects and the way that um, the way that cultural values um, affect how that process operates that you just pointed to, Hokai. 
Uh, Ken, would you like to <laughs> go first here? Uh, this is, I'll do my best. Uh, I, I, I find this a, uh, a very complex and multifaceted uh, topic, uh, Rob. And, uh, Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, Hokai and I, and I discussed this uh, several times, so it'll be interesting for us to compare notes right now. Uh, my, the way that I've come to look at this uh, is by appealing to an analogy with the arts and with uh, music in particular. I, I just found that very, very helpful. But it could also be painting. And that is that if you turn the clock back in the West, uh, say to medieval, uh, medieval times certainly, but let's say to Renaissance times, uh, you had a relationship between teacher and student uh, in the arts and in the uh, spiritual domains, which is pretty analogous to the relationship between teacher and student as it is presented to us in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, and uh, I mean, there, there are two models that were in place uh, and Tibet had a kind of combination of the two. One is the feudal model where, you, you know, the, which governed the whole society in Tibet and governed our whole society back in medieval days in which nobody was a peer. Everybody was either in some way superior or inferior, and that was very carefully defined. And uh, to someone who is your superior, you owed loyalty, and they provided protection. And that is very much an element within the Tibetan framing of the teacher-student relationship. Teacher provides spiritual protection, and the student provides uh, brings to that uh, loyalty and, and, and devotion to, to the teacher. Uh, and that has been much misunderstood and much abused in the modern West. Then the other analogy with uh, music is that in Renaissance times, you would, uh, if you were interested in art, you would apprentice with the teacher and you would just move in with the teacher and live with them or study with them uh, often doing menial stuff where you would be learning what it is to be a musician at the body level and then gradually you would develop the skills and abilities and so on. And Stuart can relate to this, I think, somewhat from his experience with the Shachi teacher. I'm, I'm thinking of Herman Hesse's uh, novel Damien as a, as a good example of, some, of what you're pointing to. Okay. And, uh, but over time, as, as the... Uh, arts left the monasteries and became standalone on their own uh, and people became professional artists and things like that. That, that whole relationship went uh, through a lot of changes, yet you still have people who, and, and now a lot of art is learned within the university or within a formal institutional context, where you actually are exposed to a far wider range of art than you would be with the apprentice uh, uh, model. 
Uh, and then within that context, you're encouraged, at least in the West, to find your own individual form of expression. Uh, and this has certain advantages and it has certain disadvantages over the earlier systems and they're just different. Uh, and then I see the teacher-student relationship developing in, uh, quite possibly in, 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 uh, along similar lines. That it won't be this necessarily a lifelong connection with one uh, teacher, which actually, you know, did operate, but wasn't the only model within the uh, Tibetan or Indian tradition, uh, to where you get a certain formal training within uh, the uh, religion and or other disciplines and find someone with whom you connected and, and form that relationship. I do think the, the one common element is that for any kind of meaningful transmission to take place, whether it's in art or in mystical practice or really any domain, it has to, there has to be a very strong human relationship. Uh, and, uh, and that may, I mean, the one extreme case that I know of is that a, a teacher that I knew in Britain, a Tibetan, uh, had 15 minutes in which he met a teacher and was unable to say a word the whole time. And no word, nothing was said to him. And then the teacher motioned to him to, to leave. And he was just devastated because he wanted to talk to this teacher so much. But the next day when he woke up, he found that his whole meditation had changed. And he regards that one teacher from that 15 minutes hmm. as his primary root teacher. It made such a difference in his practice. So that's at one extreme. And then I, another of my teachers just was with his teacher most of his life. And he, and he literally cannot speak about his teacher without breaking down and crying. It's such a close and deep relationship. Uh, it's, and, and so I, 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 think, I think we need to take into account this, this breadth and, and variety in, in the possible interactions. Okay, therefore. Well, let me just, I'll just jump in there because, uh, briefly, because um, you mentioned earlier, Ken, uh, the arid monasticism of, of uh, the, towards, uh, well, well, within the, within the first uh, millennium of the common, of the common era. And I'm wondering, uh, and I'm thinking of, of Nalanda, uh, the, the great university, Buddhist university, of course, and, and and that that characterization that you used is certainly is certainly one I've encountered before, and so I'm wondering to what extent you think that could be compared to the sort of institutional context that we find for the transmission of art in the West that you were just pointing to a moment ago. Is that is that a, a reasonable comparison? Do you think? And um, would would people then have found at Nalanda, at this, you know, uh, Buddhist university in the in the first uh, millennium, would they have uh, sought an individual teacher, or do, or they were they were they also drawing upon this wide range of teachings? Um, okay. the, the archetypal figure, uh, and then I want to hear from Hoka, uh is uh, for, for what I'm talking about here is Naropa. Uh, Naropa had risen to the top of 
uh, and he, he's an 11th century uh, Indian mystic. He had risen to the top of Nalanda. He was one of the gatekeepers, which is an extremely responsible position because they had to be able to defeat any challenger. Otherwise, all of Nalanda had to convert to the religion of the challenger. <laughs> very, very high stakes. Got it. And uh, so he, he had risen to the very top of the philosopher uh, tradition in Buddhism, which was an extremely potent tradition of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it didn't answer his mystical uh, yearnings. And, and he came back to his uh, room one, uh, one day and, and had this vision of this woman that set him out of a path to, he just abandoned his post in Milan and went seek and sought out Tulopa and had this incredibly intense relationship with Tulopa. Hmm. So, uh, but, but that's, that is, in the Tibetan tradition, that is the archetypal <laughs> figure for, for moving from the intellectual, philosophical okay. training to the mystical. Uh, Holka, your thoughts? Yeah, that? please. Yeah, what to say after this. Uh, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, wanted, I, I wanted to ask Jordan and Rob, is there, is there more behind the question of the social arrangement? Well, um, my question arises out of my own really quite intimate relationship with my teacher for 20 years. It was, you know, uh, living side by side, uh, literally for that long period of time. And around me, I see lots of, lots of schools, many of which, maybe even most of which are Buddhist, which have a, uh, a different form of relationship where one, and it's simply a matter of how many students a teacher has in part, mm-hmm. because there's only so much time in the day. But also just how it's structured and what kind of relationship the teaching has uh, for a practitioner with the rest of their life. You know, do they fit it in or is right. it their life? Right. It, and, and, I'll add to that, that to Rob's question, that when I see practitioners, even spiritual teachers, for whom their background doesn't include that sort of long-term intimate association with the teacher, there's a qualitative difference. And I don't know that I, I can feel the difference. I see the difference. Uh, I don't necessarily put a name to it or, you know, uh, form a judgment, but I do see that there's a difference in how the practice unfolds within them and in, in the interactions that I have. And I feel far more comfortable, like uh, with both of you, uh, I, f- I feel, you know, even though we have vastly different traditional forms, I feel much more familiar with how you talk about spiritual practice uh, because there's this essential relationship with the teacher that it defies definition because it's not about practice. It's about the all the small incidents that happen when two people are together and what gets transmitted in the, the simple moments when nothing formal is happening but something very small and human is happening. Well, yeah. Um, 
I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's very important. Yeah, I, I would say, referring to Vajrayana, that um, even Vajrayana should not be allowed to stand between, um, between uh, you know, to, to stand in between uh, when this encounter takes place, encounter of two, uh, two humans. Uh, it's not a, it's not really a one-way thing that happens. It's it's clear in which direction, as Ken would put it, I believe, attention flows. So <laughs> it's clear who's learning here and who we are, who we are, uh, whose fertile ground we are working on here, whose potential is being, you know. Uh, Activated. Actualized, activated, yeah. actualized, yeah, something like that. So in that sense, it's one directional, formally speaking. But in terms of the encounter, it's not one directional. And I, mm. I, have been, I have been treated like that by my own Japanese teacher. There's a huge cultural gap there. Uh, but I have been treated like that uh, since day one, that we are in this together, in a, we, are, we, we, we are here working together to do something together it's mm. not me doing something to you even though there's a clear sense of that attentional direction we're both looking at my own mind and working on it uh so there's also a sense of you know being partners in crime if if i can use that kind of language and being partners in crime there's um there's a very strong trust and a, a strong bond that develops early on that I doubt you can develop with a big number of people. So there's, there's definitely place for a Vajrayana program of classes, you know, for class uh, 2022 with 30 people enrolling and going for five years as, as a kind of uh, subject to, you know, a program with, 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 with bullet points and all that. <laughs> But that would be, I think, a very kind of a schematic and, and um, that would be an aboutism about it without actually dipping into the, into the matter. Because you can only look at that matter from within. And part of it is just this encounter, this intimacy, um, spiritual or mystical intimacy, that, that has to be a significant part of it. Um, uh, uh, lowering of, of one's ar armor and and uh, exposing oneself to another human being, uh, where usually for many people is the first time you expose yourself to yourself yeah. uh, as well. So that's an important part of it. And I don't think that there's a huge difference in which previous uh, historical social arrangements were equally uh, an obstacle. To this kind of relationship, just as there are social arrangements today that you have to step out of to have this kind of mm -hmm. relationship that is not romantic, sexual, professional, or anything like that, but where your most vital interests are at stake, nonetheless. So I would say that um, in India, for example, you could be the highest priest at Nalanda and then take for a teacher someone who could at least appear to be several levels below you in the social structure. That was a leap outside of social structure too. 
if you were in any way conventionally minded, you know, you wouldn't even give it a second of thought, um, you know, to prostrate to someone in Indian framework, to prostrate to someone who may be working base jobs, uh, maybe even, you know, liminally legal jobs and take them as your teacher to throw, to throw away your status, to throw away your um, reputation, just to learn something that you hold so precious and, and so vital for your further, um, you know, uh, awakening or deepening or whatever you want to call it. Um, that would be just as huge challenge then as it might, as it might be now. So I don't think that, uh, you know, social mores and social standards of the day are, yeah, they are, they are, you know, they, they could be a serious issue, but only if you want to do something uh, that is a new social standard. That's not what's happening here. This is, at its core, a very, very private matter. So, yeah, I'd like to underline two points that uh, Diego yeah. has made there. One is uh, mystical practice and myst uh, mystical training is just not about large numbers of people. Yep. Okay. And, sure. Uh, and, and, and so it, it can only takes place in relatively small, intimate uh, meetings. Mm -hmm. And the second is that uh, the, the degree of yearning, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a calling here or something. Uh, the teacher has knows that calling because they've responded, uh, he or she has responded to himself and yeah. is able to recognize it in the student. And, and, and as uh, Diego pointed out with the case of Naropa, it leads you to change your life. And I know several, I mean, I suppose I did the same thing, uh, but I, I'm thinking of one uh, friend, colleague of mine, who, when he first met Trumpa at a talk in Boulder in the early 70s, just looked at this person and said, this person knows what I want to know. And that was it. He just devoted himself to studying under Trumpa. Uh, and, and very solid, really, good person, but that, that, that calling came out right there. Uh, now, it's not, for some people, it evolves very slowly, but that intensity of yearning is, I think, a really important aspect. Uh, thank, thank you. Uh, I mean, I, I completely agree, um, Ken, and I, and I re really want to thank you, Hokai, for reminding me of something that was very palpable to me in my very early in my own training with my teacher and that is this sense of common endeavor mm -hmm. uh, you know it was there was the invitation I, I i you know without it being a come and join me kind of invitation but i saw um you know in the way that uh, ken just pointed to with the student of trumpa i saw an invitation and then um, my teacher actualized in me uh, the possibility of co-creating whatever that common endeavor, however we, we came together to um, uh, realize that um, or try to realize that, that common endeavor. 
And I hadn't thought about that in a long time. I'm so grateful that you've reminded me of this. We, we say sometimes that a student steps into a teacher's world. But yeah. it's, equally true, it's equally true that the teacher steps into the student's world. Yes. That, that actually is the meaning of sutra. Sutra means, it comes from the same root as suture, bringing two things mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Pierre Hadot in his book, uh, Philosophy as a Way of Life, refers to this. Uh, spiritual, you know, real teaching or real learning only takes place when the student steps out of his or her world yep. and the teacher steps out of his or her world and they meet. Mm. And, that, and that's, that's why the sutras are so often presented as question and answer sessions. <laughs> that meeting is taking place. So there's a couple of threads I want to pick up that were uh, raised earlier. In the last part of the conversation, we've been talking about an aspect of Vajrayana, which is this uh, intimate relationship with the teacher, which I had the sense from hearing both of you speak that that's a uh, one distinguishing element or certainly a vital element of the tradition in whatever form it finds itself. But we talked earlier about uh, the notion of the mirror, and I was struck by how Hokai described the all-inclusiveness of the uh, Vajrayana path as encompassing or including or making use of all forms of experience. And it's certainly the case, you know, that that my understanding of Tantra in its most general form, the uh, Tantric tradition, is that all elements of experience um, become usable uh, for the kind of mystical insight or mystical transformation that uh, we are also pointing to in this conversation. And so I, w- I wanted to just go highlight that again to just test with both of you if you see this, this notion of using all aspects of experience uh, uh, really without judgment. Like anything that happens becomes a, uh, an active element in the spiritual transformation. There's no, there's no judging or picking and choosing. There is simply uh, digesting, as it were. You want me to go first, or do you want to go first? Here you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll be. Uh, I want to go first. I'll be brief because I want to complete what I initially said, and then I would, I would like you to elaborate on that, uh, or disprove me and dismantle me. <laughs> <laughs> Very unlikely. <laughs> uh, so anyway. Uh, what, what I meant is that in, in informal practice, we use everything at our disposal. So there's a reference to sense fields. So there is, you know, touch, sight, sound, um, smell, taste, everything, and feeling, and thinking, and, and, and resting, and looking, and all these further metaphors that, that are pretty much synesthetic that developed from then on that have to do with, with developing awareness. But outside of formal practice, this equally... Um, applies to, to every domain of life and every kind of situation, especially the foundational situations of, you know, being born, being alive, having these basic needs, becoming older by day, and um, being aware that you are immortal every day of your life. These are the basic things, but then also engaging the, the realities of one's life without reservation. 
Now, that's, it, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say that we use every kind of experience. I would, I would, uh, I would prefer to avoid that kind of thinking. Uh, is, that, is that because that's uh, too instrumental? Yeah. It's like, it's like thing, you know, it's like situations, experiences, uh, existences come up uh, to be put to good use, right? Um, I'm, I'm not, yeah, it's, it's not just that I'm not sure about that, it's that I'm sure it's not that simple. Um, and it's not that, um, it's not that, uh, um, it's not that unidirectional. Uh, first of all, uh, when we talk about a variety of situations, what is meant by that is that there's always an element of novelty and an element of surprise and an element of challenge that arises from just living long enough and, you know, engaging relationships. You can't control your experience of life, uh, even if you live alone in a cave, uh, much less if you are in the social arena, uh, whether on the fringe of it or in the center of it. And uh, historical examples of uh, Vajrayana figures we have them both at the fringe of society and at the center of action. Um, and there are very good examples how they, uh, how they, it's not they used their practice to do something in life, but it's also not that they used their life to further their practice. It, it's not like that. This is, this is where I would like Ken to say uh, something about it. Yeah. <laughs> Hunker is reminding me of a conversation we had uh, about a week ago, actually, uh, because I was stuck on uh, a, a section of the book that I'm working with. I, I think I've solved it as well, but, uh, <laughs> but, 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 the, uh, but it was uh, on exactly this point. Um, uh, and I, I think you're right, Stuart. When we use the word, uh, I was struggling with the translation of a certain term, and one of my colleagues translated as utilization and you know and that fit the context but when Oka and I went into it he made exactly the same point that he just uh, did now that uh, and it's a reflection of our instrumentalist thinking as you observed and it, it's we have to be very very alert to how thoroughly our cultural context you know, filters into how we think about mystical and spiritual practice because it, it can often distort that, and I think that's what uh, Diego's referring to. And, uh, and, and I agree with him, because the, the usage metaphor um, works up to a point, and then it breaks down, and it breaks down rather badly. Mm -hmm. uh, now, when you first posed this question, the, the first thought that came to mind was my, one of my favorite quotes from Yogi Berra. In theory, there's no difference between practice and theory. In practice, there is. <laughs> so it's one thing to say, you know, work with all aspects of, of experience. That is highly non-trivial. Mm -hmm. and, and how non-trivial it is, uh, I, I think people, and I think some of the problems we've seen in uh, practice uh, communities in, in the West is because people do not realize how non-trivial it is and, and they're uh, 
try to do things or think they can do things which they can't and, and are, are being run by their reactive patterns and when they think they're reacting in some spiritual way uh, it's been very very problematic as far as i'm concerned i'll just jump in to say that in our I, in our spiritual bookstore um our spiritual bookstore seems to be a magnet to attract people who have the idea that it is something that they've already accomplished to be able to do that. Yeah, so, well, um, I, so you're calling it non-trivial is is an understatement. It, it, and, it, I, and what you're describing is just an expression of uh, modern narcissism, as far as I can. Can I can I jump in to to yeah. to, to fill to fill in on that non-trivial matter? Um, <laughs> I have I have two. I have two basic principles which I which I always uh, uh, repeat with with my own students uh, concerning this to use um, matter, mm -hmm. uh, which is what can be used can be abused. That's one mm -hmm. level. Okay. Yeah. And then there's and then there's another level. Whatever you try to use, you may end up being used by it. Yes. That's the other level. Yeah. Um, that's exactly that's exactly why I. I pose the question about the material circumstances because that is that truth that you just pointed to there infiltrates into um, the way people think about what they're doing. Yeah, and, I, I want to I, I respond because I think the the intent of the language I was using isn't the uh -huh. uh, intent that uh, you're drawing from that. And it may be because I. Uh, made use of a word <laughs> use. You're not if you want to get, get if you want to get out of it, uh, just um, getting deeper. deeper. Yeah, getting deeper. Um, so, you know, what uh, Rogers has to say about this? What's that? When you find yourself in a hole, stop thinking. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, well, well, let me try again. <laughs> see if I can there go, we go. Uh, see if I can go a little deeper here. It's a uh, si it's a side tunnel. Here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. I, and, and partly this is being informed by uh, our own tradition and the language in the fourth way, which I will be the first to admit has uh, all sorts of instrumentalist features in it because in a way it was constructed to be an alternative to the scientific worldview at the time. It was also developed at the end of the 19th, beginning of the Yeah, 19th. exactly. So it has, it has this wonderful classical, you know, if you like Maxwell and you like, uh, you know, a classical mechanics, you'll like the fourth way. Um, uh, but there's a notion, and I see this in Tantra as well, and I, I'm thinking of um, a, um, I guess he was a, he was a fourth way uh, student and then became a, a student of a uh, Advaita Vedanta teacher, a guy named Arnaud Desjardins uh, in uh, France. And uh, he would talk about saying yes to life. And so that resonates. Saying yes to life to me is probably a better way of uh, 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 expressing what I was trying to get at than using the experience of life, because to use the experience of life presupposes a, an intent or a purpose or uh, an outcome, whereas saying yes to life is more of a way of yeah, I, responding. I think, I think that's a very, very good point, Stuart. Uh, and and I, uh, I agree with you completely that in a certain way, there are different ways of saying the same thing, but they actually transmit something very, very different. And, and uh, I think it's a really very good 
example of why we need to be careful about language. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to complete the, the thought that your uh, question, earlier question raised, and I think, and you just brought it up again, this, um, what Tantra actually means. In, in the Tibetan tradition, um, Tantra, the word Tantra, is, uh, comes from the uh, weaving, uh, and it refers to the thread which goes back and forth. It's the continuous thread hmm. uh, that goes back and forth. And it's used as a metaphor of that awakening or uh, groundlessness or whatever term we want to use is present in every instant of human experience. And, uh, and that, that's the principle. And, and so when we talk about saying yes to life or, uh, you know, the, the purpose of Adriana, you might say, your intention is to be able to touch that awake quality in everything you experience. And, you know, as we've already discussed, that's not really to, to move that into an instrumental term saying this is what you're using it for, that's, that's problematic. But how difficult that actually is, um, I mean, in, in the Tibetan tradition, we have guru, deity, and protector, you know, these three different manifestations. And, and the protectors are very much about, or one way of interpreting the protectors is very much about learning how to the, relate to the wake, uh, wakefulness in, the, in, in some of the darkest and most powerful, and we might say biological aspects of, of human experience. Uh, you know, these very, very deep drives uh, and being able to ex experience the wakefulness in them, which normally just, just run over us and, and take over because they're serving biological agendas like mm -hmm. reproduction and, uh, and uh, self-preservation and so forth. Uh, so, as Rob alluded to, you know, bookstore is a kind of magnet for people who think they can do all of these things. But, uh, you know, I, I find that learning these principles and then developing and being careful to make sure one has a sense of humility because it's, it's not easy. And it's one of the reasons why mystical practice in general in Vajrayana is, is dangerous because if you delude yourself, then, as uh, Hokai said, you don't use the experience. It uses you for its own ends. And that can be disastrous. And not, not just for yourself, but for a lot of other people. So we're, we're talking about the level of uh, humility uh, or you know, epistemic humility, that, uh, which basically means you're resisting the temptation of pretending to know. <laughs> when you don't right yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly yeah. Right. which which actually deepens as your practice deepens as your awareness expands and deepens this this humility also deepens it's not like it goes away that you know the more aware you are the more present you are you know the the more certainty there is and the more confidence in the class you know in, in the conventional sense it's not like that it's actually it's it's paradoxical at every steps if you if you're looking from a conventional viewpoint in that which is which is a little bit like the scientific principle uh, i think it's it's at least present in in uh astronomy which is with each new discovery the 
the, the range of what we don't know expands exponentially. Um, so th that, that would be a kind of a parallel yeah. here that, you know, th the more you find yourself able to be present, to know and to respond, the more you are also uh, able to, to, to withhold from, you know, prematurely coming to a conclusion that, that, that just isn't there. More, more aware you of how much you don't know. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, I mean yeah. the the coming to a conclusion uh, is itself. This, I, I mean, th this is why we talk of mystery yeah. all the time. Right. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. I mean, it seems like coming to a. Uh, if I get anything from what both of you are saying, it's the uh, the need to come to a conclusion uh, loosens or softens because. Uh, yes. Yes. Very definitely. That's right. Uh, and uh, I brought up the word mystery and you move into living in a mystery, which is not how most people want to live. Right. No. No. I, I use a, So just to tie it again back to a word, I think, Ken, you used at the beginning, you, you talked about a groundless quality hmm. to the reflection that we see in the mirror. And that groundless quality one way that I interpret that is when I, when the need to define or the need to have a conclusion ceases or subsides, there's a groundless quality or a sense of free fall that is uh, experienced without the necessity to anchor it in an interpretation. Yes. I'm reminded of a, uh Another experience. Uh, this, this this conversation, as an aside here, has been has been reminding me of stuff from very early in my in my encounter with my teacher, and um, and this this last thing about free fall reminds me of of a particular. I didn't at the time call it a mystical experience. I didn't have terminology for it, but I guess retrospectively I could do that, and it was an invitation by him to engage in a meditation, as I would put it now, I certainly didn't think of it that way then, to, um, to recognize that I was always free-falling all the time. And it, was a, it, it had a visceral quality to it, um, which, looking back on it, I, I can appreciate it in a, in a completely different way than I did at the time. But it was, impor it was important. Um, in addition to that, I wanted to just address the, 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 the point about language uh, again, and that is saying yes to life is another invitation that can be misconstrued extraordinarily readily by people. I've seen it happen. Um, once again, people can fool themselves that they're saying yes to life. That, is that when you say yes to a second bottle of wine? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not just that. <laughs> but um, but uh, these caveats about language um, need to be reiterated again and again because language is always inviting the mind to misconstrue its experience, I think. We, as human beings, we're always looking for a way out, aren't we? Yeah. 
and and I, I suppose one of the things that I've learned and come to value in uh, over the years is uh, increasing ability to recognize that I'm looking for a way out rather than meeting what is right in front of me, mm. uh, what, what the world is presenting to me. And I feel that I, my ability and yeah, I, I would even say my willingness to meet what the world is presenting to me uh, is very different from what it was you know, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. I'm very grateful for that. Diego? Well, if, uh, yeah, if I stay within that analogy of the way out, um, I, relatively early, I found myself wanting uh, to find a way in. <laughs> uh, but, but even then, it was on my own terms. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, which, which, of course, never happens, right? So even when we, you know, even when we refuse, uh, when we recognize the uh, futility of, of the relative futility, um, no matter how uh, functional and well adapted this looking for a way out may be, <laughs> uh, the futility of that way out, when we turn and look for a way in, even then we find ourselves you know, uh, looking for it on our own terms and having a preconceived notion of, of how it should how it should happen, how things should be better, or something like that. Which of course how uh, I should be, or how I should be. Yeah, things or me. Yeah, which is yeah, which is kind of a again two two sides of the mirror. But then um, it it never happens like that. I'm not saying it happens the opposite of what we uh, you know of what we plan. But it's usually something completely unexpected. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an awakening, would it? It would just be a confirmation. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I want to, uh, the, the musical analogy is coming up to me um, uh, because of my own, the training I'm engaged in with my Shakuhachi teacher. And one of the things I noticed is that there's this, ongoing process by which he's able to express um, with the music a, a quality, an energetic quality that I can, I can hear and I can sort of feel. And then he can very precisely tell me how to attain to that by, uh, you know, a coordinated use of muscles and uh, uh, attention within my body. And I'll practice and practice with him watching and get it, not get it, get it, not get it. And he'll tell me. And then when I get it and I can repeat it and get it, um, I sort of start to get this holistic sense of what he's talking about. And I'm, I wanted to ask you both that, that for me that is, has an analogy to spiritual training. And the the point about that is that um, there's a point where we can experience, you know, like we can sit with a teacher and experience uh, a quality of being, but not really have access to it. And with practice, there comes a, a, a point in which 
we have enough experience with the uh, constituent factors in our body and our attention that we can reliably attain to that quality of being without the necessary presence of the teacher. And I guess I wanted to see how far we could go with that analogy or if you feel like that analogy captures something about how we begin to grow in the capacity in our embodiment to manifest more refined qualities of being. Ken? Okay. Uh, I think you can go quite far with that analogy. Uh, as you were talking, and you and I have talked about this before, Stuart, and I, I, I've seen you and your teacher plays uh, a couple of times. The, I want to ask you, when when you're playing with that quality, where is your conceptual mind? Uh, the, to the extent that the conceptual mind is active, it's busy chasing the uh, sort of injunctions of moving my attention around. Uh, it, is, it is fully occupied with the, the creating the conditions by which something that's beyond the conceptual mind can express through me. See, I, I want to, I, I, I may be doing your, your teacher a great disservice here, but it occurred to me as you were talking that and this is where I feel there's quite a profound analogy with mystical transmission. Uh, he's giving your conceptual mind a great deal to be busy with. Yes. So that you are free to play. Yes, by, and, and absolutely by design. I mean, he, he articulates that in that. I mean, I, I think of it as uh, uh, the analogy I've, I think I've maybe even used in the conversation with you before is the analogy of a dog, you know, when a dog has a a, a, a role, uh, a job, you know, like if it's herding sheep, then it's really quite uh, uh, calm and purposeful. And if it's not, and it's just in the backyard, it becomes very neurotic and makes a lot of noise. And my conceptual mind is very much like that in this context. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, in, not infrequently, uh, it, it's a case of getting out of our way, and this is helping you get out of the way, so the music could just come through. Yes. And it's quite wonderful, and, and, but it's the same thing in, in, in mystical transmission. You, you give the student something, and, and the student gets all involved with it, and then some, but that opens the door for something else to arise. And, and, and as Hawkins said a few minutes ago, uh, and it's quite different. Uh, it's not something that's being expected at all. That's why it's an awakening. Uh, back. When, yeah, when I was when I was listening to Stuart uh, talking about about the, the the training together with the teacher and playing, uh, and then he said, "I see this musical training as an analogy for spiritual training." I thought, "Why just an analogy?" Exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like it's like it's it's not even connected uh, vessels. It's it's more like two two rays of light meeting in midair. Are they two rays of light, or are or do they happen to be the same one? 
so the source of light may be different, but you know the the meeting point in the in the space uh, is the same is, is the same space. So this musical training may, and I would bet regularly does illumine the same kinds of shifts that are aimed at in spiritual training. And you know only the conceptual uh, framing is what is, is what makes this huge difference. Oh, this is just music. Oh, this is mystical experience, right? Actually, there's a, there's a, there's a huge uh, overlap uh, that's easily available. Now, I, I'm not saying there is no difference, that, that there are subtle differences. But if we go back to asking the question, what is music about? It's, it's basically resonance, right? Skillfully, um, skillfully uh, working with resonances. Uh, not controlling resonances, not necessarily even producing them. We don't have a very good idea how, how resonances are produced. We have theories about it, but we have very poor understanding of how hearing takes place, for example. Uh, how exactly does it occur, even though it's obvious. And then how does the teacher know what's happening in a student's body? So as there is this dialogue of resonance at the level of music, there is a deeper resonance mm -hmm. between the two bodies of the teacher and the student where the teacher's body is already transformed and the student's body is looking for a way how to shift into that more optimal place where, 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 where producing a certain kind of musical resonance is taken as a rule of thumb, but not as a definition of it. The shift is deeper. That same shift could be there when you are talking to your wife. The same shift could be there when you are approaching a scared puppy. The same shift could be there when you are being yelled at and insulted. What kind of resonance would it produce then? That's, 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 that's the mystical or if you want the tantric question. So you mm -hmm. learn about the shift on the uh, practicing instruments, but then you take that shift as, as, as a permanent availability, right? When, when you learn it well enough that you can relax into it or energize into it, uh, whatever be the case, usually it's a combination of relaxing in a certain way and energizing in a certain way in a balanced manner. But if you could take that shift into a variety of situations, I bet that they would alter your performance in those situations, right? And it would be obvious. Uh, so, but in the end, all these skills are um, perhaps a, a, a very... Uh, a, 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 a very uh, um, intelligent way of distracting us into mm -hmm. doing something so that the back door opens up. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, yeah because, because the, the, you know, the, 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 the deepest level, whether in musical performance or in mystical experience, is about a native, you know, a natural capacity and uh, that, that has been developed through these variety of training ways but the way we develop actually liberates it and it's effortless just like we effortlessly fall into sleep at night the try the harder we try the more difficult it is to fall asleep and just just like we wake up in the morning so it's, it's deeply organic and deeply somatic this is how we embody all these things they become just a part of what our body does and, okay. and if we try to do it more, it actually uh, it actually creates an obstacle in the natural functioning of the body. 
You, you see this very much with boys coaches. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that when, when you're coaching someone how to speak, uh, it, it is primarily about getting them out of the way so the body can naturally resonate. Mm. And, and, and then the speech becomes very powerful. I, I remember a, a program I did you know, 20, over 20 years ago uh, with uh, teachers, and there was one woman uh, there who uh, uh, we, we were doing a, a uh, mock teaching session. And uh, I remember coaching her, and, and at one point, she actually shifted out of her proper teaching voice that she had in her head into her actual voice. And it was such an experience for her that after she said a couple of sentences like that, that she just stood there in shock and had to sit down because she had not ever felt her voice in her body that way. Hmm. And, uh, and yet, when she spoke, it wasn't raised or anything like that. There was such power and such presence in her voice. Mm -hmm. that, that's obviously where she should be teaching. Yeah. So, so to 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 go back to Stuart's example, it's it's on the on the, you know explicitly it's uh, it's about things you know you don't know, right? So you are in the process of learning, but implicitly it's about things you don't know you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice formulation. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask if uh, you to carry this discussion further about ways in which we give the conceptual mind something to do. Uh, does ritual function in the same way? I can give you a very definite example. In the Tibetan tradition, there is a practice called Nyungne, which basically means temporary fasting. It's based on the thousand-armed Chenrezig. It was developed by a nun in medieval India, um, known in Tibetan as Gelongma Pommel. And uh, it's the thousand-armed Chenrezig. And, and in this ritual, you do all of these devotional prayers and say mantra of this very, very complex figure. You know, it's got a thousand arms and a thousand eyes and 13 heads. You know. uh, and one day you eat and drink until noon. You have your noontime meal, and then after that, you uh, can only drink. The next day, you have nothing to eat or drink at all the whole day. Then the next day in the morning, you can drink and eat again up until noon, and you alternate these two. Now, most of the time, it's, you just do one noon day, which is you know, one day, half fasting, one day full fasting, and then you have a little celebration. But if you, uh, uh, the pr usual practice is do several of these new, uh, the, these uh, two day things back to back. And what happens then is that you feel okay the one day and you feel terrible the next day because you don't have any food or drink. And then the next day you feel very good. And then the next day you feel terrible. The next day you feel good. The next day you feel terrible. And what you are learning actually through this practice, which is done all with all kinds of devotional prayers and things like that, is the equanimity of just being able to do regardless of how you feel. Hmm. 
that that is and that kind of alternation of things like that so you mess up the usual operation of reactive patterns by deliberately uh, alternating between two things is a very standard practice in the Vatriana context. It's also in the Gurdjieff book, I know that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can confirm that also, yeah, and agree with that, that this is why, this is a reason why most of the practices I've done were learned in a 100-day period. That's how they were actually, uh, Hmm. it's training how to do, but also it's a long enough period in which, you know, most of your ups and downs will take place, and you will end up uh, trying your practice through all sorts of, you know, lows and highs, uh, disasters and successes, so that in the end, it's just practice. It doesn't matter matter what happens, how it ends up, even the outcome becomes unimportant. You, you let go of your ordinary ideas of success, failure, yep. what need, all of that stuff. And, and, and the idea of difficulty versus, you know, yeah, and things like that. Or, or getting somewhere. Yeah. Even that, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. As you say this, I had a, I was thinking of a slightly different um, gloss, which is and when I use the analogy of uh, my... Uh, Shakahachi teacher having my, you know, he'll, he, he, he calls it like balls, like you're juggling. So, you know, he'll throw something at me. So it's so all practice on my, um, you know, the movement of my jaw and my tongue, and then I'll forget to tighten my butt or, uh, forget the side muscles. And, and, it, and it's like, it's, it's hilarious because he can, he can always just, you know, I try my hardest and it even sounds really good. And he says, so, so did you remember your upper lip balloon? And, and, but then, as I, as I said, the mind is is so occupied that uh, you know something does ultimately switch in the course of even a, an hour lesson, where that struggle drops away, and then there's just kind of this relaxed uh, 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 performing. And then you begin to play. Yeah, then I begin to play, and and I can do as he says, which is to chase the feeling and not chase the notes. Yeah, I, and this is actually. So similar to meditation practice, uh, yeah. And uh, but but I, the part of what I was asking with ritual is I um, uh, what work I've done in the the, the Western uh, magical tradition in terms of forms and more elaborate uh, sequences of rituals function in a similar way. And and you know, it's uh, practitioners will refer to this as an art as opposed to a science because it has the same quality of there's a, the more that, you know, the mind gets settled or occupied with the structure, it creates a space in which uh, uh, something beyond the mind is able to settle into a deeper sense of being uh, with what's happening and that one become, one can, when successfully practicing such things, become a conduit for uh, uh, things beyond oneself to move through you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, at, at the operational level, uh, it's, it's you know fairly straightforward. Uh, at at the level of the body, ritual functions as as a way of structuring uh, structuring time and your relationship to the environment. Uh, at the level of speech, ritual functions as a way of maintaining a particular level of energy. 
So neither, you know, neither uh, dipping down into, into slack nor becoming uncontrolled and wild and nervous. So there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a, you know, there's a kind of a flow uh, at the level of energy. And at the level of mind, ritual is pretty much about uh, simultaneously uh, giving the wild uh, uh, mind something something to work on, but also allowing for allowing what is worked on to be a proxy for what what the opportunity is about, which is always basically awareness, just getting in touch with the deep awareness that's already there, so that. Even as we were talking about before, a lot of what ritual is about is not introducing some kinds of weird elements into our behavior or our experience, but actually removing what what gets in the way mm-hmm. and, and, and channeling some of our, you know, habitual physical, vocal slash energetic and and mental habits, channeling them into something that is, you know, less. Um, less of a problem, something that can be worked with. And therefore, the ritual is also, uh, on that basis, an allegory how all experience can become workable if, it, mm-hmm. if, we, if we allow ourselves to avoid certain extremes. Uh, but, you know, eventually we can work with, even with some extreme situations more easily than, uh, than, than it sounds. Yeah. yeah, we we just have to become equally extreme ourselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wanted to, uh, which is non-trivial, which is non-trivial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're you're making me think of uh, uh, both the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago and uh, some of the comments you just made tie into my experience as I've described with my Shakuhachi teacher is the body is such a profound source of energy and power. And if I, you know, to kind of harken back to Rob's question about social contexts and the, the sort of the material culture of a particular time, it is the case that our world today and our Western, Western consumer-oriented world is really, we've really downplayed the, uh, um, the body level of experience and and we're so dominated by the mental level of experience that um, when I see the degree of power and the, and the nuance that's available in the body when it's applied in say, the production of music or in the production of uh, meditation, I, I'm just, it's such an untapped area uh, that I, I see today we're so divorced from in our normal uh, cultural manifestations that um, uh, I I don't know what to say about that except there it is. But I'm curious if you agree, see the same thing, and does that present a particular problem or a particular opportunity for uh, practitioners to reconnect with something that's been lost? Well. It'll be very interesting to hear what Diego has to say because uh, Japanese culture is a body culture in a way that uh, Tibetan culture is not. And uh, yet, in my own training, there was awareness. I remember when I was learning one of the instruments for playing rituals during the three-year retreat, 
uh, one of the people, one of the lamas teaching me, uh, after he had taught me the tune, took my arm as an oboe-like instrument with fingerings. Um, but he took my arm and then played the tune on my arm. So he's putting the tune right into my body. And I thought, wow, I've never seen that as a, as a teaching technique. Uh, but I, I tend to agree with you, and I'm, I'm speaking very much from my own personal experience, that uh, I was so caught up at, at the mind level that, in, uh, and I, I think I've mentioned this to both of you before, that in the course of the three-year retreat, my body said to me, you can go and get enlightened if you want, Ken. I'm not coming. <laughs> and that, that represented a very significant problem point. And it took me, from, from, from that time, I, I got very ill after that. And then uh, it took me about 20 years to learn how to relate to my body. It was a really, you know, slowly over time, uh, but it was, it was a, a long, and, and it, I, I dug myself into a very deep hole. <laughs> So, uh, Diego, well, it's 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 still awakening within a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> you have to look at the bright side of things, don't you? <laughs> that bright mirror. Yeah, I think well, well, George, what you said about the Western uh, in general, it's not just Western. I think because now it's, now it's yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, everyone is yes, everyone is copying the Western model in every way. So if you look at what what the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, dignitaries are wearing it's mm -hmm. Western suits, right? With a Western tie. So uh, it's not just Western anymore. But the the um, the measure to which or or the degree to which we are estranged from the bodily level of experience is directly uh, illustrated with how obsessed we are with images of the body, mm -hmm. or uh, you know whether whether you look. You know, I don't want to even give examples. I mean, the the obsession with 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 how we look. And the obsession with looking at each other, you know, is, is, is obvious everywhere. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it affects all, all, all domains of life in a, in a very painful way. Uh, appearances instead of, you know, uh, the, what, what, what having a body feels from, from within, from, from within the body. It's, it's what should matter first. Now, in, 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 in my own training, we start with, 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 we usually start with reading a text by the founder of the school, which is called Awakening. Uh, oh, actually, the translation would be Becoming Buddha in this body. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's the basic meaning of awakening, uh, waking up in this body. Uh, not in uh, the, the meaning sometimes given in Indo-Tibetan tradition is uh, that's referring to one lifetime, like a fast, you know, fast, mm. uh, fast way of uh, in terms of time right yeah well in the Japanese Vajrayana tradition this awakening in, in the body means not so much the temporal aspect but the space aspect of it hmm. uh, meaning uh, the location of waking up is is here right so it's not about awakening quickly before you die uh, it's more about awakening here so it's a difference uh, between awakening now and awakening here Yes. <laughs> yes. There's a there's a, there's a difference on in emphasis, but but also in in some ways in which it is approached. Then so so there's there's this element even at, at the doctrinal level of, of really appreciating the body as the as the ultimate uh, you know crime scene, 
<laughs> I go back to the partners in crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because there has been a crime, you know, namely, namely developing a deep forgetfulness of, of, of that, of that body and, and stepping out of it. And, uh, in, in the West, there has for a long time been a very unfortunate tendency of blaming uh, the, our spiritual predicament on the senses, which is uh, very, very distant from what the early pre-Socratic uh, Greek philosophers were aiming at. They were much closer to what eventually became Vajrayana in, in, in India and then spread across Asia, which is that uh, going deeper into senses, we find awareness, not trying to transcend the senses and therefore uh, damning the body, you know, to some kind of lower, uh, how do you call those, ring, lower ring on the on the Jacob's ladder, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. that that's really interesting because because if there's one thing, you know, I, I read through the uh, um, English translations of the Pali texts, uh, the Pali mm -hmm. Buddhist texts. And if there's one frequently repeated thing, or there are many frequently repeated things, but one of them is is watch the sense gates yeah. or close the sense gates and and that sort of thing. So 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 then can I conclude from what you just said that Vajrayana is a very different take on um, uh, no, on, on, no. <laughs> on that view. Then, then elaborate, please, it, uh, because it sounded uh, on surface. Yeah, I would argue that it's different. a specific. I would argue that it's a specific reading of of such an instruction because that instruction can be read in two very different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, one is as a caution, uh, a caution towards senses, right. uh, guarding the senses is the usual phrase there. Mm -hmm. uh, but that what is referred to there is leakage. Uh, which is kind of a technical term, uh, awareness leaking into the outer world or mm -hmm. projecting itself outside and treating the outer world as if it was an objective reality instead of awareness embracing the outer world and, okay. and, and uh, maintaining one's own experience as happening within awareness. Uh, so, so that would be the level where uh, it's not just the words on a, on a page in a text, this is, um, it has to be su um, supplemented uh, yeah, that's by, the, by, the, by the teacher-student relationship. That technique would be uh, applied in the context of Vajrayana training, uh, but it would be applied with perhaps different uh, pointing out instructions, mm -hmm. which is to not, to not see the sense gate mm -hmm. as, as an adversary or an enemy, to probe deeper, right? To find awareness there. Uh, very much so, and there, there are explicit practices on, on that in the Tibetan tradition. But uh, I think it goes much deeper in Buddhism. Yes. In that the uh, if you go back to the life of Buddha, uh, which is full of metaphors, uh, he does this um, seven years of ascetic practice, mm -hmm. basically trying to transcend the body, mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, and he's working with five other people, uh, and and he said at some point this just isn't working. And getting me nowhere, right? This this isn't uh, working. We're getting nowhere. And, and the other five, uh, and he says, I'm going to go and, uh, and and have proper food. And the other five said, Flake, <laughs> you know, you're giving up. You're selling. <laughs> uh, but he nourishes the body. Yeah. 
and finds that he is capable of a quality of attention that just was not accessible through the asceticism. And, uh, and so there is a tendency, uh, and Hogarth has alluded to this in several of his comments already, there's a tendency within us is to make our efforts in spiritual or mystical practice into a thing, and then we get caught by it. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of renunciation, well, then we give up everything and we start blocking things. And that introduces a really problematic imbalance. And uh, going back to uh, one, a theme that we uh, started on about, you know, how does this work in the West? I, I think because we, uh, all of this takes place at the level of, of, of the body, we have to find the appropriate ways to find balance and restore our relationship in the West. And that's going to look very different from a cultural perspective than the way it was in India or Tibet or in Japan or in these cultures. Yep. Yeah, and, yep. and that's what we're in, we're in the process of, of discovering. But this, uh, this idea of waking up in this body, waking up here, or the awakening is present, or the possibility for it is present now, I think this is really, really important, but it means we have to relate to now, uh, even though we'd rather things, uh, and something that you and I touched on, uh, Robin certain one of our recent uh, earlier conversations about, we have to face the situation of our lives, however unpleasant or difficult or painful it may be, because there isn't anywhere else to be. Right. And that's one of the uh, aspects of, of Adriana, and I, I would say Buddhist practice in general, but certainly something in Adriana. It's, it's you know, the, 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 the notion of middle way, or the middle path, Madhyama Pratipad, was not developed in terms of the Buddha throwing away eternalism and nihilism, but actually throwing away extreme forms of practice meaning uh, asceticism and indulgence. Exactly. Uh, So, you know, finding balance in how you practice uh, was actually the original definition of the middle path, not finding balance in your philosophical... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Right. No, no, I understand the the point. And I I brought it up, you know, it it leaped into my mind because when I was reading those passages in the polytexts, it didn't it didn't seem to me to be coming from um, a, a middle way perspective. And, you know, our, our uh, Ken's and our mutual friend, Jim Wilson, used to say, well, sometimes these texts, which were, collect- which were written down and collected from a, a, almost certainly from a wide variety of sources all across India, where the Buddha was teaching and then developed beyond that, makes the point, well, sometimes, sometimes this is Mr. Cranky writing. This is, or, or this is uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, equanimity writing or, or, or that sort of thing. Now, uh, take that for, for, for what, it, what it may be worth, but I, I'm, I'm glad that um, you, you pulled I'm, these two together, the Vajrayana with these other expressions. I think that's, I'm symp- that's I'm important. Sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to that interpretation, but there's also the other thing, you know, not all, not all individual texts and not all approaches or techniques uh, speak for the whole path. Sure. Uh, you know, at times there is a, there is a, 
an, an instrumental approach for a problem that is a little bit off may may seem a little bit off itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not proposing overcorrection or anything like that. But if someone is obsessed with 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 with, with bodily functions and bodily needs and bodily impulses, then then some people thought that that person may may you know be benefited by a degree of dispassion or by looking at the ugly side of the body which is always there too mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know so we have meditation on the 32 parts of the body 32 aspects basically which which does its best to to expose the body as something disgusting we find it not just in the Pali canon we find mm -hmm. it in Shantideva too which is a seminal Mahayana text but we have to understand the intention behind these these approaches. Uh, I'm not. I'm not also saying that Buddhism is without its, um, you know, <laughs> blunders <laughs> historically, or, or or maybe going going too much in a certain direction at a certain moment. That's that's also there as a possibility. But without understanding the intention of a particular body of of, of uh, teaching or body of, of practice or particular interventions, we can't make sense of it. Uh, and then, as I said before, you know, the same technique may appear in different practicing contexts with, you know, the same melody can be practiced in different tempos yeah. and, and create very, very different uh, experiences in the performer and listener. Well, th well, thank you for that. It's, uh, um, I mean, uh, you, you've actually helped me see in a way that I hadn't seen before um, <laughs> that... Um, that these traditions that you guys uh, have have gone so deeply into fit into a conception of the middle way that I didn't quite I didn't quite grasp that Vajrayana had this middle way oh, um, aspect to it. It's essential. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's essential. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I, but I'm saying just 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 from my previous experience of, of hearing people talk about it, reading stuff, I didn't I didn't quite grasp that that was understood to be central. So that's one yeah. thing. Yeah, no, that's it. But I, I want to go back to something that Hoka said very early in this conversation, which I think uh, is important, uh, that how uh, adaptable Vajrayana is to uh, the circumstances and situation of each yeah. individual. Uh, but I, I want to take that a little further, perhaps, in that I, I've come to the conclusion that awakening is... Uh, we, we talk about awakening as if it was one thing, but I, I think it is, uh, I, I think that's potentially highly misleading because uh, every area of human endeavor or human experience is extremely complex and multivariate. Uh, uh, and why, why should this shift into mystical experience or living in the mystery be different? And I, I mean, Quite a long time ago, I, I stopped paying attention to what my students were experiencing and paying more attention to what effect their experience was having on them. Mm. Uh, and this brings us back to the body <laughs> again. It does. It does. It does indeed. And and one thing we're we're basically at the conclusion of our, of our uh, uh, time here. It's, it's gone by so fast. It started. <laughs> I, I I understand that. And we can continue on another time, but I but I will just but by way of uh, adding to your point, your final. Oh no, Rob, hand. Rob, you don't understand. It takes us two hours to get to this point. It will be the same <laughs> next time. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I don't. I don't accept that. 
<laughs> we can do it faster next time. This has been a lot. This has All been a lot of fun. Efficiency thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We're resonating better and better. That's yes, that's the, that's the point yeah. I want to make here. Now, now you're just taking a hole. <laughs> <laughs> Well, go ahead, Rob. You were saying. Well, well, it, it, you know, on the teacher-student thing, that's not just one thing. Enlightenment's just not just one thing. Yeah. And this conversation is just one wonderful thing. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It's been it's been really wonderful. Oh, it's a pleasure, and it's, it's nice to talk with uh, Diego. We yes. Converse regularly, but we we have relatively few opportunities to converse with a couple of other people like this, and I yeah. thoroughly enjoy it. Okay. Well, I'm I'm hoping we'll eventually do it uh, either in Croatia or California too, in person. Thank you, thank you, Ken. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Stuart, and greetings to all your listeners. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Shingon Buddhist teacher Hokai Diego Sobel and Tibetan Buddhist teacher Ken McLeod. In this penetrating discussion, we explored the nature of Vajrayana Buddhist practice and its antecedents in the Tantric tradition, the primacy of the teacher-student relationship and the intimacy of spiritual transmission, as well as the body as the foundation for the awakening experience. Next on The Mystical Positivist, we feature an encore airing of an interview with Rose Volkhausen, Vijaya Fedorshak, and Karuna Fedorshak on the topic of spiritual lineage, and how to embody lineage as disciples of a teacher no longer in his or her body. All three guests are disciples of spiritual teacher Lee Lozowick. Under the pen name of Janet Rose, Rose Volkhausen is the author of Journey, From Political Activism to the Work. Vijaya Fedorshak is the author of Father and Son, the Indian beggar king Yogi Ram Kumar, and the American master and poet Lee Lozowick. Karuna Fedorshak is the author of Parenting, A Sacred Task. This show originally aired on February 6, 2016, and we offer it now in commemoration of Karuna Fedorshak, who died in peace on May 30, 2020. Tune in for that show on Saturday, June 13th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.